This podcast is proudly sponsored by Virtuous. Now, giving is a very deeply personal thing, and they believe that your fundraising should be too. This is actually something we talk about a lot on this very podcast in terms of how can we grow, improve, and optimize giving and generosity. So traditional impersonal fundraising tactics often alienate donors and create a distance between them and the impact that they want to have. Virtuous is the only responsive fundraising platform designed to help nonprofit teams build better donor relationships with all of their donors. And I have to say, I think it's a great product. I've referred multiple nonprofits and charities over there in the past and continue to do so in the future because I believe in the people and the product and I just think it's a really good modern piece of fundraising focused software. So I recommend you check it out. And if you are interested in finding out more, you can go to virtuous.org slash generosity. That is virtuous, V-I-R-T-U-O-U-S dot org slash generosity. Hello and welcome everybody to another episode of the Generosity Freak Show. I'm your host, Brady Josephson, and today we are talking with Juniper Glass. She is the principal at Lumiere Consulting up in Canada, and we're talking about some really interesting research that she did looking at donor engagement of women in Canada. So what are um, some of the wealth transfer that's happening? Uh, How much of the market are women actually leading and commanding? And then more specifically, how do we engage women in fundraising and philanthropy? So we talk about that. We talk about some of her other research and work largely around indigenous organizations in Canada, an incredibly important area of work that doesn't get talked about nearly enough. And then we have some rapid fire questions about some of the things that Juniper appreciates most. So I hope you find this episode interesting, useful, insightful, practical, all of those things. And thank you as always for listening. Welcome to the Freak Show, here we go It's just another Freak Show, here we go I said welcome to the Freak Show, here we go It's just another Freak Show, here we go Welcome to the Freak Show, here we go It's just another Freak Show, here we go Welcome to the Freak Show, here we go It's just another Freak Show, here we go Hi, Juniper. Thanks for coming on the show. Hello. Thanks so much for having me. I was going to try to do that in French, but then I'd be such a fraud <laughs> and be so exposed. I just decided to stick with English. But uh, thanks for, for joining, even if uh, we can only speak in English. All right. So uh, we're going to try to cover a lot of ground. And you've mm-hmm. covered a lot of ground in your career. You have such an extensive background in fundraising and philanthropy and organizational development. So many wonderful things that you've done in your career. Has that always been something that you planned on doing or is it something that you kind of fell into and then fell in love with or can you share a little bit more about your journey kind of how you got to where you're at sure um i think working in the nonprofit sector definitely is what i what i foresaw early on because i as a teenager i was very interested in um making the world a better place and um you know that that was sort of the that was the path I saw myself on fundraising. Not at all. Mm-hmm. When I was younger, um, I think I tried briefly a job as like a door to door, like canvasser of donations. Oh, yeah. And I hated it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's <laughs> a type a, of fundraising, you know, it really like- is. Yeah. So, and then, and then I, so I really did fall into it. Mm-hmm. Um, I got a job, um, where, where fundraising was, was about half of the job Mm. and the other half I was, you know, 
working work that I was very comfortable with, mm-hmm. um, research and evaluation mm. of programs in a nonprofit. And the other part was the fund development. And it was a small organization. I got to grow with it um, in my skills. I got to see the organization grow. I got to gain um, a lot of savvy on the job and found out that I really loved the business development kind mm. of um, sphere of things. I found out I was really good at it because mm. I could um, tap into what the potential partner or, or donor was interested in and mm. find our areas of alignment. And that was very exciting for me. So I definitely fell into it. And I was a person who said, I just like fundraising. I will never do that. <laughs> yeah. And then I ended up doing it for 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, even when you were saying that, I was just thinking it would be so great if we could kind of cross train people, you know, programs, you know, have to spend some time fundraising or learn fundraising because it's better and vice versa. You know, if those two types of people and, and, you know, can kind of know more about each other's side of the business, I think it would be great because you need each other, you know, you really totally. do. So it's cool that you kind of did that uh, more organically. Yeah. Well, I, I do want to talk a little bit more about the the research side of things. And that's what we originally c- connected on and a great piece of research you led on donor engagement of women in Canada. So that's what mm-hmm. I want to focus on. Um, so I know there's a lot in there and it's always tough talking about, you know, copious <laughs> and deep research that you've done, but why is this topic important in the first place to do such research uh, for, you know, Canada, but just the sector at large? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, this isn't new, the idea of women in philanthropy, um, women as donors. So there has been some excellent work done already um, in the U.S. Kathleen Lohr wrote a whole book called Gender Matters based on um, her experience as a fundraiser for many years. Um, and it's kind of a, a great how-to guide. And I think that the research report that I put out is a is another good compliment because um, it has a lot of practical learnings from fundraisers. And um, so it's it's important for a few reasons. The like most professions, um, most areas of our communities, um, fundraising has been built with on a certain time and standard, and that was when, you know, um, men were the main wage earners and decision makers and leaders in in all fields. And so, you know, very much that gender disparity continues today, but fundraising was built around assuming, for example, that a man was the head of the household. And, Mm -hmm. um, And so that's an important reason. I think the other is that women are, um, we've learned are often key key decision makers around in a family um, where charitable donations will go. Mm-hmm. And then we've also learned that in Canada anyway, and the same in the US, there's a huge wealth transfer that will be going on um, in addition to you know, women gaining more independent financial power through their own earnings or as business people. Um, women are receiving um, uh, inheritances from uh, their partners who pass away or from mm-hmm. their families uh, as they pass away. And so in Canada, it's estimated that there's going to be a $900 billion transfer um, towards women in the next 10 years. That, and that was written <laughs> a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And also that women tend to be more interested in um, 
in the betterment of society and they have more trust generally than men in the role of nonprofits and charities in making a, a, you know, an important difference in our communities. So for all those reasons, it's, it's pretty important. And yeah, so in, in my research, um, one of the questions I asked um, fundraisers was um, why did they uh, start in the first place? The, the sort of a focus in their organizations on, on women and as a, as a key uh, aspect of their donor base. Um, and I got lots of answers. And one of them was just realizing that it was an untapped kind of potential. Mm -hmm. um, another was realizing that the majority of their kind of really active, engaged donors and volunteers were already women. So maybe there was more to be done to serve the interests of those donors and volunteers. Mm. Um, in other cases, women and volunteers were super proactive and were like, we want to do more for this cause. What could we do? Mm. Um, and yeah, so my interest in this research was to go from past research, which just kind of said women and men tend to give differently. They tend to have different needs or what they're looking for when they make a charitable donation decision. Um, they want to be engaged differently. So that, that's interesting. But then I was like, but if you're a charity or a nonprofit or a fundraiser, what do you do with that right, knowledge? Right. So I wanted to see um, how nonprofits in Canada were engaging women specifically as donors. And so you know, that's the limitation because there's there's all kinds of ways that um, you can do that holistically. So you can weave kind of a gender awareness as well as an awareness of other um, axes, if you will, of diversity. So an awareness of, you know, where someone was born, their, um, their, their community, their, um, their race, their ethnic background, all kinds of things about them that you need to take into account as a fundraiser. Mm -hmm. um, but there are also lots of groups that have created specific programs to engage their women donors. So that's what I focused on. Um, and I, I found, a, uh, I found 72 different, uh, organizations across the country, uh, wide ranging from universities and hospitals to community foundations and smaller nonprofits, as well as national advocacy organizations um, that had created some sort of approach that was specific to women. And, uh, and I did a bit of an analysis of, you know, what were they doing in those programs? And then I interviewed fundraisers and asked what was working and what wasn't. Awesome. Thank you for, uh, you know, all that background. I think obviously it's really important to just, you know, remind people of the fact around some of the, the just strategic reasons, regardless of like equity reasons, just strategic reasons if you're trying to raise more money, that like untapped, you know, perhaps surprising statistics, although if you've been in fundraising, some of those aren't that surprising perhaps. Yeah. Or even just the, the transference of wealth, which I hadn't seen that figure before. It is really interesting because I have heard people say, you know, if you really want, you know, the revenue of a major gifts, you need to build relationships with, with a woman, whether she's controlling the, the actual money or not, she's essential in the decision, even if it ends up being, you know, the man's name or what a company account or what, like, you know, that's partners and all that stuff. But beyond that, the, the new research, obviously around, you know, more and more wealth being transferred and commanded by women is really interesting as well. 
So yeah. you shared a bit about why it's important and kind of how you went about it um, and identifying those unique organizations with specific programs. What are some of the things that that you found? Were, you know, were there common trends across these programs? Were some having more success than others? Were they all trying to approach it the same way? What are some of the the kind of key things? And obviously we'll link to the study and people can dive deeper, but give us some mm -hmm. of the, the key highlights. Yeah, so what I noticed is that there tended to be um, types of programs. Um, so the program models, uh, you know, in the past, there had been, for example, hospitals would have women's auxiliaries and service organizations at universities focused on women. Um, so those are the older models. And then the ones that I was finding, you know, existing today is that there tend to be a few different types. One is where there is kind of an exclusivity, an exclusive group, mm. um, a sense of engaging just a handful of um, women who are giving major gifts. And in exchange, the organization was working with them, curating learning experiences and engagement experiences for them to learn about the issues, to maybe take some action as advocates. Um, and what those programs really offered was a place for those women to finally often feel mm. like they were with others of like mind. Right. Um, so for them, it was um, a chance to really get closer to an organization that they cared about and also um, to share a passion, which they may not share with their family members, which they mm. may not fair, uh, share with yeah. um, their colleagues. Right. Um, so that tends to be like a higher ticket item, right? So there's gotcha. a much larger kind of donation and a longer time period for the organization working with them. And, and were those programs created based off, you know, meetings and discussions with women who said, you know what, like, even if I, even if I get invited to these more exclusive groups, which I'm, I often don't, it's not comfortable or it's not fun or safe, you know, cause I'm the only woman, like, is that some of the feedback that they've heard? And like, why did they create these programs? Was it just, yeah. Was it based off feedback that they've heard or was it just an idea they came up with or. I think it's about, um, so yes, the feedback um, and working closely with women donors mm. is definitely a best practice that no matter what type of program, whether it's right. this more exclusive kind of smaller group or the other type that was more common um, was kind of having a smaller annual donation and a sense of membership mm. in a, a larger group and then a few opportunities throughout the year to come together to network, maybe to hear about different projects that their donations are supporting or maybe mm. to kind of even vote on which projects within a, within a, an organization they wanted their money to go towards. Mm. Um, but that's a sort of a lighter touch, I would right. say program lighter touch for the member, not for the organization because all of these <laughs> right. do take a lot of time to coordinate. Yeah. Um, but yes, that was one of the, the practices um, that over and over I hear heard from fundraisers was they were much more successful when they engaged some of their existing uh, female donors early on and mm. then throughout in co-designing the uh, the experience, whatever that, yeah. whatever type of experience it might be. Yeah. I mean, and that's just like kind of design 101, right? Is kind of 
know who exactly. you're trying to design for and exactly. include them in the process. Like it's not, you know, revolutionary. So it, it, it does seem like a lot of it is, you know, intent. You said it does take a lot of work. Yeah. Know? So if people sit down and go, yeah, we intentionally want to build this. That's probably how you should go about building it. Whether it's the lighter touch or the, you know, more yeah. exclusive thing, it would start with, are you actually engaging and trying to co-build something with those folks, right? Exactly. Yeah. And, and I mean, but surprisingly people do that sometimes. They're just like, oh, we need to do a women's thing. And someone's like, yeah, some women's <laughs> thing. And they just like, create right. it, the container, but it doesn't, it's not really successful for that right. reason. Right. Um, hmm. The other things that I found super interesting were, you know, past research has found that um, women are more interested in sort of what is the impact hmm. this organization is having? What is, what are the outcomes that are being produced? Um, hmm. And what is a way to really get at the root cause of this issue? So mm. that sort of interest in systemic change um, is has been found to be more prevalent among female donors than male donors. Interesting. And so I found that really encouraging because personally, yeah. I'm very interested in systemic change too. And um, and so some of the organizations I spoke to uh, had found great success in um, creating a program that engaged women as donors, but having the their donations channeled towards, you know, the, the unmet needs of the organization around their systems change work, because it tends to be a lot more difficult Mm. to fundraise for policy advocacy, for example, than for direct services. Mm. Um, Because a lot of, um, you know, just the general public isn't going to catch on to that, um, that policy change work. But what they were able to do in some cases is to engage um, their really close, uh, you know, donors who are women and say, if we really want to move the needle on this issue, we've got to be doing this, this and this. We've got to be partnering over here and doing this kind of policy advocacy. Mm. Will you back us? Will you, you know, we need champions. Will you, you know, support us? And um so women tended to like being given the real deal and their inside scoop on the organization mm-hmm. and hearing what is their plan to right. make a long-term difference. Um, so I found that very encouraging for, yeah. for nonprofit, having worked in a nonprofit that was doing both direct service and advocacy mm. um, to know that you can talk about that stuff. Um, and a lot of female donors will respond well. And and why do you think that is? Is there like other, you know, research uh, that kind of supports that? I mean, I, I have a hypothesis, but I don't know if you've kind of found other links as to as to why is there just something that we've learned is like, it's just a thing. That's, that's, uh, that's what we've learned about yeah. women in philanthropy. It is kind of what we've learned about women in philanthropy. And it's, it's also, I mean, it's, it's not generalizable, but, but yeah, right. I think there's a sense of, um, because women as women are exposed to gender inequity, I think it sensitizes us more to the other, you know, that, that social issues we face have deep causes, deep roots, and this desire for like a real transformation rather than just band-aid solutions. So I don't know exactly why, but that's, that's, I think, an element of it. Yeah, that was going to be my hypothesis. So it'd be interesting to know if there's other, you know, underrepresented groups, you know, if there's similar yeah. research and if they also had same kind of thing, because it's like, no, look, I know what Band-Aid solutions or, you know, superficial things look like. 
you know, yeah. I've experienced it firsthand and uh, I'm more interested in getting beyond that. That would be interesting yeah. to, to line up that research with other research. Maybe that's the next research project that you can <laughs> do is, you know, discover that and find the links. Um, <laughs> well, that's cool. Well, you mentioned a few different programs. Are there some other programs that you found? Because I, I do want to move into, I know the report's quite actionable into some of the things that kind of organizations are doing or some things that you found in terms of what organizations can or should be doing. Um, is that your question? What else? What else? Yeah. So, yeah are there, there other, are there other totally. programs before we move on to things that people can do? Yeah. I mean, very popular is using the form of a giving circle. And so generally, um, giving circles are, uh, you know, kind of informal self-organized uh, people who come together around a common cause and, and most of the time um, giving circles around the world are formed by women. Mm. Um, and then they decide together where their pooled donation will go. Mm. Um, but nonprofits can also use this model. And so I've seen it done internally um, where you know, women are invited to come together to give a certain level of donation and then limited options are provided to them saying, here's the three priorities that we have as an organization, mm. you know, where would you like to direct right. um, your resources? And the same thing with a community foundation or um, a United Way can do something similar and say, right. here's the organizations in our community that are working on this issue that we believe in would you like to add an additional donation and which ones and how much so that they, mm. they get that, that sense of um, decision-making power. Gotcha. Yeah. I, I uh, didn't make the connection between kind of giving circles and intentionally engaging women in philanthropy and in, in their giving. That's, that's a cool link and a cool strategy. This episode and podcast are proudly sponsored by Virtuous. Now, you've heard Brady talk about it with our guests before, but I wanted to remind you that giving to a cause is deeply personal, and your fundraising should be too. Unfortunately, today's nonprofits are handcuffed to outdated fundraising models that reserve personal connections for a select few major donors. Instead of creating connection, Traditional impersonal tactics alienate your donors and create distance between the donor and their impact. Virtuous is the only responsive fundraising platform designed to help nonprofit teams build better donor relationships at scale. Responsive fundraising with Virtuous combines modern technology, data intelligence, and donor-centric giving experiences to foster personalized conversations with every donor. Virtuous is more than just a CRM. They unify fundraising, marketing, and donor development activities, ridding teams of redundant back office tasks, and revealing the insights needed to deliver dynamic campaigns. And all of this happens in one place. You can turn data into deeper donor relationships and grow your fundraising with Virtuous. And to learn more about responsive fundraising with them, you can visit virtuous.org generosity. That's V-I-R-T-U-O-U-S dot org slash generosity. So what are some of the things that you discovered or kind of coming out of this that were ideas? You know, if a nonprofit's listening, you're like, wow, you know, I haven't actually really thought about how to engage women specifically in our work and on the fundraising side. What are some of the things that they can do? 
Yeah, um, I think the first is definitely to do a bit of an analysis of both the organization's needs uh, in terms of fund development for what, um, you know, what what's what's the real the the programs or the type of work that's really needed to be funded. And then on the other side, their existing donor base. So do some analysis around that gender analysis and then um, other analysis intersecting with that. Um, what communities do these um, current donors come from and so on. Mm -hmm. And then just to start have conversations and say like, what kinds of things are you to donors? Do you want to get involved in and then float different ideas of um, possible models mm. um, for a women focused program? And it may be that they're not interested and that's the data you need. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it may be that, uh, yeah, that they they're not interested in a, like an exclusive gender based program, but maybe they're interested in something else. Um, organizing. Yeah. Learning that's open to the community, but also to donors right. about the issue, for example. So that's the main thing. Um, and then, um, yeah, generating the, the, the support within. So one of the pitfalls is if a program like this gets developed, but it's siloed within the organization, that mm. it's not connected to the other fund development work. It needs to be very much um, integrated and communicated mm. um, amongst the team members and right. definitely the leadership and board need to come on board. Yeah. Yeah. And again, that's, it's pretty, that's whether you're developing a program specific to women or yeah, any or other key program, like you gotta, <laughs> you gotta kind of get that, you know, as well for it to succeed, especially, you know, I get the sense that a program like this could often be kind of spearheaded by a person perhaps of saying, mm -hmm. I see this opportunity, you know, and I'm going to take the lead. And the danger is that program breaks down or falls apart if they leave the organization, yeah. you know, because it wasn't institutionalized or something like that, right? That's that's exactly. why it's really, really key. Cool. Well, where can people find out more about um, this research uh, that you've done? Yeah, so my website is um, lumiereconsulting.ca. So that's Lumiere is spelled in the French way, L-U-M-I-E-R-E, consulting.ca. And I have... Um, a publications tab that has a whole bunch of work that I've done in the past. Um, so it's there. And uh, yeah, I would love to hear how people are using these insights, if at all. Yeah. <laughs> it's always great to get feedback when folks are like, oh, I used this. Already <laughs> I've heard that. Like I took this to my team or I took this to my board and I said, you know, we should we should put some energy into this area. Yeah, well, we'll send the links again for sure. And, and that is a, like a researcher's dream because that is the fear. It's like, all right, we, we did all this work. Here's a cool PDF. And <laughs> who knows, you know, you can see someone downloads, but do they do anything with it and all that kind of stuff? So yeah. uh, I found it really useful already and I'll be sure to kind of revisit and share with some folks. I did want to touch on another area of kind of research and work that you do that doesn't get mm -hmm. talked about very much. And it's not unique to Canada. I mean, it's a discussion that goes on in the United States, but also your lens is obviously quite unique to Canada and it's working with indigenous organizations and kind of philanthropy and, and social work mm -hmm. uh, in Canada. So uh, I don't want to take too much time, but it is a really important issue that doesn't get talked much about. So for listeners sake, especially American sake, can you, if you can briefly articulate kind of mm -hmm. indigenous uh, issues in Canada and why, you know, fundraising philanthropy uh, with Indigenous organizations is such a, a, a big issue that doesn't get talked about. Yeah. 
500 years of history, right? And five, <laughs> yeah, five I don't know, just, minutes or less. Um, yeah, it, so, yeah. so, you know, we're, we're facing a lot of reckoning um, with inequality um, in our society, in North American society, and, and gender equity is part of that. Um, you know, the rights of queer and trans people is part of that. Um, of racialized people, black and um, other racialized communities. And so, yeah, what does it mean that, you know, the wealth that we've created in philanthropy is all about money and exchange of money as a resource? Um, that wealth came from somewhere. And most of our wealth is based on the natural environment, based on the land's resources, and also, you know, the, the labor of people. Um, and so colonization of North America um, is what all of our wealth and our ability to live here is based upon. So we have to acknowledge that. We have to acknowledge that truth. and. Um, we had a Truth and Reconciliation Commission in Canada, um, which published its recommendations in 2015. And that's not the first time. I think it was 20 or 30 years before there was a similar um, uh, royal commission that came out with very similar findings and recommendations. But there's something about now, there's something about um, reaching a kind of a critical mass around racial equity and um, reconciliation and relations with indigenous communities that I've seen a lot more donors and foundations, grant makers, um, are willing to take it seriously for mm. some reason, finally, mm. now. And so that's really good news. Um, at the same time, I work with a lot of Indigenous organizations, and it's great honor because I learn so much um, about how to be a good human <laughs> um, from that work. And one of the key things I've learned is um, reciprocity. And so um, reciprocity, that value recognizes that you know everyone involved in an interaction, whether it be giving a grant, um sharing knowledge like we're all we've all got something to give and something mm. to receive mm -hmm. and so that's humbling we need to be humble in all of our interactions even if we are in the place of giving money away or you know getting fund fundraising and getting a donation we need to be in that place of of humility and recognize um what is actually being shared and the value of it so the money is one thing but there's values, there's teachings, there is um, uh, the, the valuable knowledge that Indigenous communities bring, which a lot of um, the foundational principles of most Indigenous cultures have to do with, you know, living within your means, within the natural environment. Gosh, we need that value right now <laughs> because climate change is kicking all of our asses and it will just get worse. Um, a lot of indigenous cultures have the value of, um, just as I said, each person has value. Each person brings gifts into this world. 
Each person has responsibilities as well as rights. Mm -hmm. So things like that, man, do we need those values to be, you know, realized in our society right now. Mm -hmm. So I think that's what I've learned the most of working with Indigenous organizations. Um, and then their interaction with philanthropy, there's been a long history of, of, of you know, just as with other institutions in society, um, using the power badly mm. um, as to, to further oppress uh, Indigenous communities. Um, unfortunately, charities um, have been part of that. So, so there has been a lot of reticence um, amongst Indigenous communities to receive outside donations or partner because it just hasn't gone well for several right. hundred years. And right. so, um, so at the same time, um, there is a very strong and growing um, generation, but not just based on age, but set of um, Indigenous professionals who have this expertise, who mm. are working within the nonprofit and philanthropic sectors um, and they are now the bridge builders, um, able to create new ways of doing philanthropy mm. that work for Indigenous communities. And they can use um, the nonprofit forms, for example, creating a nonprofit organization or creating a grant making foundation themselves mm. um, to serve the community's interests and purposes and be right. Indigenous led and use Indigenous values in that. Mm. So there's lots um, growing. There's it, there's really exciting work out there in Canada. The leader in this area is called the Circle on Philanthropy and Aboriginal Peoples. There's also Native Americans in Philanthropy in the U.S. and um, and then lots and lots of Indigenous-led funds now, mm. um, as well as uh, organizations. And yeah, so they're they're trying to say, look, we we have. We have power, we have expertise. We are not the vulnerable at-risk communities only, that we mm. also have a great deal of power and different types of wealth. Mm -hmm. um, and so when they seek charitable, charitable partners, they want partners and donors that see their strength mm. and want to reinforce, invest in that strength. Mm. Yeah, thank you for sharing. That's, that's awesome. And it's great to hear that there's a, an awakening of sorts uh, on both sides, right? One kind of understanding, no, look, this is, this is our destiny, you know, take, take control. We have, you know, wealth, we have things to give. And on the other side, recognizing that more and more, that's, that's great. Um, thank you so much. So uh, do you have a, a research or a, a link or is it the same thing? Like, you know, it, I know it's one of the things that you work in and, and talk about. So would it, would it be the same place to go and find out more? Or, um, you know, we can link to those two organizations that you mentioned as well, if people want to. Yeah, I think those are great places to start um, on uh, Indigenous philanthropy. Great. Mm -hmm. Well, we'll get those out. I got a couple of rapid fire questions for you. Uh, All right. And then, I'm ready. And then we'll, we'll let you out on, on your <laughs> way. Thank you so much for taking the time. All right. What is the best book you've read or listened, if you're not an audiobook person, read or listened to recently? Oh, gosh. I have two Decolonizing Wealth by Edgar Villanueva, which is all about Indigenous philanthropy, and The Overstory, which is a novel that is really long and I keep trying to get through it, but my <laughs> Kobo tells me, like, Okay, 67% red. And I'm like, man, <laughs> it's it's about trees. It's about humans' relationship to trees, but it's a novel, very interesting. And oh my gosh, I didn't know where it was headed, but it's headed to the forestry 
you know, and, and, and logging blockades on the West Coast, which is something that I experienced as a teenager myself. So I, hmm. it's kind of crazy flashback for me to be reading it in a novel. Interesting. Well, there you go. Um, what's your favorite place to, to do work or research? Like literally on my back porch with my puppy beside me. Um, <laughs> there you go. Is that's that what, what I was, meant? Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what I meant. I was just curious. Yeah. Um, what's an organization that you admire and or support that you want people to know about? I had the opportunity to work for a year and a half with the National Aboriginal Council of Midwives. And they hmm. are doing, talk about an amazing Indigenous-led organization. They are doing amazing work to... Um, to work with um, pregnant people in that in that amazing time of life and that transition that actually has huge repercussions for the health of the whole community, for the health of the children, the family. And so if pregnancy, birth, and the postpartum period is done with with support and in for their for their in their case, you know, culturally, sensitive culturally sensitive support it can just l make a huge difference for, mm. for the community and so i love them they're so inspiring awesome thank you that's a great one and, and last one what's who's a, a person or it could be like a site or a blog or something that you think people should be uh following yeah so i just started following um lily zhang who is a justice equity diversity and inclusion expert author and consultant um, from the US. Uh, and she posts on LinkedIn about almost every couple of days. And they're just brilliant insights into um, what it's like to be assisting organizations at this point in time to transform and become more equitable. Mm -hmm. So I really encourage people to look up Lily Zhang on LinkedIn. Awesome. Well, you've given us a lot of uh, resources and information. And so we're gonna have a lot of links to send out. Uh, but that's great. That's the whole purpose is how do we get different perspectives in this conversation of generosity. So uh, we'll be sure to send those out. But one more time, where can people find out more about you and your work? Yeah, so it's it's lumiereconsulting.ca. And um, I'm also on LinkedIn, Juniper Glass. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Juniper, for your work and for giving us the time today. Take care. Thank you so much for listening to the Generosity Freak Show brought to you by our friends at Virtuous, the only responsive fundraising platform designed to help nonprofit teams build better donor relationships with all of their donors. Be sure to subscribe to all future episodes at generosityfreakshow.com or search the Generosity Freak Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, other platforms that start with S or wherever you get your pods. Now, The Generosity Freak Show is a production of Next After, where we combine the perpetual learning of a fundraising research lab, the practical application of a digital-first agency, and the rigorous instruction of a training institute to decode what works in fundraising and make it accessible to as many organizations as possible. You can learn more about the work that we do and get free evidence-based fundraising resources at nextafter.com. Now, this show would not be possible without a few folks, including our mixologist, Jacob Hill, producers Riley Landenberger and Nathan Hill, and the chief visionary behind it all, Tim Kuchuriak. So thank you so much again for listening. And no matter where you are or what you're doing right now, I hope you're having a great day. <laughs>